Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. I have always uh, sought to look just a little bit deeper in the study of the Torah. Why the title? Why has this title been given? And the, the insight that I would like to offer to you tonight is there's something that was agreed to up on the mountain at the mount, or on the mount, Bahar. Har, in Hebrew, is mountain. It wasn't a negotiation with the people. It wasn't really a negotiation between Moses and God. God just simply told Moses, this is how it is. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. And then he proceeds to give some instruction on certain things that will be done with the land that the people will go into. Namely, the instruction is, the land doesn't belong to you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the promised land. It's not yours. You know, that's, that's the irony of the whole situation. And it really speaks to, in the things that we're going to hear here, he says, uh, every seventh year, I want you to give the land a rest. You can cultivate, you can plow, you can harvest, and so forth. But on the seventh year, no more cultivation, no more plowing, no more trimming, no pruning, no harvesting. Well, how did you get the food? Well, you walked out by your own hands and you gathered it. If your family needed some, you went to the field, you got some. But you didn't gather it in like a harvest and put it into a storehouse and then distribute it that way. If you wanted some, you went to the field and you got it. No harvesting. Well, in the case of that year, of the sabbatical year, obviously there was no planting. Now, if you don't plant, you know how, how do you harvest? What, what are you going to eat? And it put a very interesting constraint upon the children of Israel when they came into the land. They said, you can do it for six years, but on that seventh one, no, you can't do it. And then the teaching goes just a little bit further, and it begins to say, and then you will count those years. You will count seven of those years, 49 full years. But on the 50th year, the year that's after that seventh one, That will also be another sabbatical year. That will be another year, and that will be called the year of Jubilee. Some very special things will happen on that year. Let me uh, read this first section of chapter 25, uh, taking us down to that part uh, where we we read of that. Follow along with me, beginning at verse 2. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prime or prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And all of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female servants, and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad 
on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend, or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell it to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price, and in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price, for it is the number of crops he is selling you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear the Lord, for I am the Lord your God. Now one of the things that I have tried to emphasize to you in the teaching of the commandments of Sabbath is that Sabbath originates from the creation. It's from the creation story, passed down from Adam all the way down through Noah to Abraham to Moses, where Moses wrote the instruction and told us the story of the Creator. The, uh, when you get back into Genesis 1, from about Genesis 1 to about Genesis 5, that's the area of the book that is extremely hard for people to believe. Let's just face the facts. I mean, we're, we're saying God created the world in six days, right? Six million years, right? Six hundred thousand years. You know, six days, he said. That's when we start the commandments about marriage, the institution of marriage. That's when we tell the story of, of where everything that was created came from. And in there we say there's, there's a God. There's a creator of all of these things who instituted these things, established these things. And he said to recognize him as a creator, you would cease from your labors on the seventh day and you would rest just as he did. Now, it's very interesting because, you know, I don't think God needs to take a rest. Think about that for a moment. God's God, you know, he can create heaven and earth. I don't think he's like a man. He gets tired. It says that he neither slumbers nor sleeps, that he watches over Israel all the time. He doesn't get tired. He's not. So it doesn't say that he really got tired. It just says he ceased from his labors. He rested. He stopped. And that we are the benefactors of obeying the commandment. It's we who need rest. We can't stay awake all the time. We, we need this little respite every once in a while from our labors. So he gave this commandment, and thus he's given us the instruction that the Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. But this Sabbath thing is this basic building block that God then begins to use to establish how all kinds of things are on this cycle. That the Creator didn't just make man who needed rest. He made the earth, and he says the earth has got to have a rest too. The land must rest too. And you will give the land its rest. 
which goes back really to the fundamental issue. And this is one of the reasons why this whole section of the Bible is so hotly contested. The bottom line is this. Whoever is the owner of the land or of any resources, the owner has the authority and the right to put restrictions upon it. This is a basic premise of, of real estate law. If you can put a restriction on the ground as to how it is used or in the manner that it is used, then you're, you're the owner. You have the say on it. So, for example, if you lease you know, a house or some ground or a farm to someone else and you put a restriction on there that there's one thing you can't do or, or you, you can't tear the place down, you have to check with me, you know, that's, that's the indicator of who the real and rightful owner is. That clearly uh, removes all confusion. Who, ha who, who really owns this? And from the very beginning, when God created man and woman and he put them into the garden, he only put one restriction on the garden. Just one. He said, there's this one tree you'll not eat of. Now, I don't know whether you've really thought about it, but from a contract standpoint, from a legal standpoint, that's a very, very important piece of information given to us in the Bible. That says God owned the place. That the guy was there working for it, it, it didn't belong to man. It didn't, the garden wasn't owned by Adam and Eve. They worked there, they lived there, they stayed there, they didn't own it. God still owned it. And he, therefore, he had the authority to put a restriction on it. He said, this one tree you won't eat of. And that's the reason why they got evicted. They broke that restriction. And as a result, they were evicted. Now, the people are getting ready to go into the land of Israel. The owner of the land is now putting on a restriction, just as simply as it was done back in the book of Genesis. You'll not eat of this tree. He says, now the restriction of this land, the land of Israel, is you shall give the land a rest every seven years. You'll not harvest on that seventh year. That way the land will have its rest. Furthermore, he goes a bit further. And he says, I got some other restrictions I want to put. I want you to count seven of those. And then after seven complete ones on the 50th year, here's what is to happen. Anyone who is in debt... All their debts are paid off. <laughs> well, I kind of like that restriction. Kind of like that year of Jubilee to show up. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. How would you like to, you know, gather up all your bills, every debt that you have, every installment debt, every debt that you've ever possibly owed, back taxes, school, the whole bit, and on this year, when they blow the shofar, you're clear. No more debt. Wouldn't that be, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? On top of that, if anywhere it was shown back in the past that your ancestors had owned a piece of ground, you could move there and you owned it now. You could go back and resettle in the place where your parents had lived, their house. Wouldn't that, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? That was what was set up in the year of Jubilee. Because the land had earlier been divided up when they went into the land, and they knew where each piece was, the Lord had appointed, 
And he said, on the year of Jubilee, you get to go back to the land and you get to live there. That's where you get to go. And it's yours again. So that every generation has the opportunity to be debt free. Every generation has the opportunity to live on the ancestral lands of their fathers. To improve them and do whatever they needed to do. Now, the rest of this goes on to say, you have the right, if you want, you have the right to sell it. You get it. It's yours. But let's say that you don't want to live there. You want to live over here. You, you have a business or you want to live in this city and, and you don't want to stay here, but, but you want to get something of the value and somebody else wants to live there. You had, you could sell it. But really what you were selling was you were just selling time on the land. So many harvests could be scored off of that land until the next year of Jubilee. And so if you had 49 years standing in front of you, <clears throat> you could sell the land for the value of 49 harvests. Now, you, there wasn't a set price. It had to be kind of negotiated and, and uh, so forth. And, and maybe somebody didn't have that value. But let's say that someone had lived on the land for the last 20 years, built it up, built their home and everything, and here comes the year of Jubilee. Well, if they've accumulated and stored up, then they can offer to purchase it from the rightful owners and still continue to go. There was, there was a system set up here to where that if you made the investment, you could still recoup it and, and so forth. But, but the books all got squared, you know, once every 50 years for everybody. One of the things that uh, our uh, leaders tell us is that that causes class societies that causes uh, the world to be the way it is for behaviors, a multitude of behaviors, is because of economic deprivation of a particular group of people. Every 50 years in the land of Israel, you solved the problem. Not to say that there wasn't poor judgment on some people's part, but every 50 years, we cleared the books. Everybody got a piece of land. Everybody got their fair share. Everybody squared up. And you no longer were caught in the depression of indebtedness. Generally, if you had been indebted for a number of years and suddenly you were free, you didn't jump right back into it again. Hopefully you'd learned your lesson. But if you didn't, well, you weren't strapping the next generation to where that they couldn't come out of it. There would be their year of jubilee sometime for them that would pull them out of whatever decision that you'd made. The year of jubilee... Uh, obviously carries with it a great future implication. Because we've not yet seen the year of Jubilee fulfilled for what God is in, and Moses is intended here. The way this uh, was done, the way they used to call this, there's two very intriguing things that are associated with the year of Jubilee. First of all is in the word Jubilee itself. In the Hebrew, the word is Yobel. And a correct and literal translation of Yobel is the ram's horn. Yobel was the blast of the horn on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, the 10th of Tishri, in the fall, we have Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. We count 10 days to the Day of Atonement when we afflict our souls. The day of a fast. The day that we look for God to make atonement for us. The day of the two goats, the scapegoat and the one who sacrificed. The day, the only day the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. The day the scapegoat is taken out. And when the scapegoat has been taken out, there's the sounding of the shofar. 
a ram's horn, a long and great blast on it. And if it is the 50th year at that sound, the celebration began. Everybody was debt free. All the bills were paid. The land was returned to you. All is forgiven. You get to start new and fresh. That God's covering of atonement has been that complete that he's paid all the bills, you know, for everyone. Now, there's a great and wonderful picture there because that is what will happen when the Messiah comes back. I tell people that the only people who are really looking forward to the Messiah to come back are those that are in debt. <laughs> this is true. It's the year of Jubilee for them. All the bills are paid. All of them. All debts to all persons. Emotional, physical. All of them are paid. Because when he comes back, it's a different world. And when he comes back, those of Israel will go to Israel. Those of the nations will go to the nations. When we worship the Lord, we'll all go to Jerusalem. The Lord will live in Jerusalem. His dwelling place will be in Mount Zion. He will also reclaim what belongs to him, too. How is it that he can come back and that he can just take away everything that belongs to so many people? It's the year of Jubilee. And the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. It's just like Israel. Israel belongs to him. The fact of the matter is this is the passage that teaches the sons of Israel that in verse 23 it says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. It puts a whole different perspective on you and in your thinking when, when you begin to make the distinction that the place where you're at, you get to enjoy to its fullest, but you don't own it. See, when you own it, you get to do anything you want. You want to tear it up, you can tear it up. Want to ruin it, you can ruin it. But when it, when it belongs to someone else, then you have to treat it with a measure of respect. Now, I don't know if you have gotten this concept yet, but let me back up just a bit. That We've been talking about what God said about the land, but I have news for you, folks. This same ownership thing is on you personally. You don't belong to you. You belong to the Lord. He created you. He put restrictions on you. He put some restrictions to prove his ownership. One of them, he said, was, I want you to rest every seven days. When the Sabbath comes, I want you to cease from your labors. And so last week we talked specifically about the importance of keeping the Sabbath. And one of the things I said to you was, that keeping the Sabbath designates who's your God. If you have the sign of the Sabbath in your life, it is a sign to all peoples and to the Lord that you are honoring the Creator and that your life is not your life. Your life is as a result of the Creator. And you're recognizing His authority over you. You're recognizing His position as God. Your position as the created. It's a sign. But if you don't keep it, 
then you don't have the sign. Then you then then you you're not sending the witness or the message that you're associated with that particular creator. Now, one of the things I tried to indicate to you last last week is that Yeshua, when he came and he got into the controversy with the religious leaders, one of the clear points that he made with them was he said, "Look, you claim to to follow God." However, you reject the Son, therefore you don't believe in the Father, because the Father and the Son, we're one. You reject me, you've rejected him. In fact, he went further and he said, you cannot claim that you're following his commandments, because the fact is, you've set aside those commandments that he made, and you've made new ones. You have made new ones, and so when you say you're obeying God, you're obeying God, all right, it's a different God, though. If you're following the God who made these commandments, then that would be true. But if you're following other commandments made by another God, whom you claim is God's commandments, then you're following a different God. My great concern of our day, brethren, as I said last week, is not about the keeping of commandments. You know, amongst my Gentile brethren and my Christian brethren, my great concern is which God's commandments are they following? You see, the same logic applies today. If you claim to believe in the Son, but you reject the Father's commandments, and the Father and the Son are one, then you've rejected the Son too. And these commandments that we speak of are the commandments of Yeshua, Jesus. It was his finger who etched them in the stone that was given to to Moses, because Jesus, Yeshua, is always the physical manifestation of God to us. And I can show you there's plenty of verses in the Old Testament, Torah and the prophets, where it clearly says we, a plural group, are one, speaking of the Lord. That the Lord speaks of himself in a plural form, but as a unified form. And he cannot be subdivided. The same is true of this about Sabbath. Now, if you're willing to obey and keep the Sabbath concerning you, well, there's also a Sabbath for the land. That has to be kept, too. You can't separate it. And then there's a Sabbath of Sabbaths. We keep that, too. Now, interestingly enough, these commandments had to do with the land of Israel. Are these commandments for America? Not yet. When the king comes back for the whole world, they will be the commandment. They will be the law of the land. But not yet. In Israel, yes. That's what he says. When they come into the land, then this is what will happen. And I can tell you that in the future, it will be the law of the land for all of the earth, because it says then that the Torah shall go forth out of Zion into all the world. These commandments will be for all nations to follow. See, the way we view Israel, the land of Israel, is Israel is really just the down payment on the whole world. The contract's in place. We have the evidence of the proof that he owns it. He's got the down payment. It's in there. The restriction's there. He owns the place. And those who recognize that he is the rightful owner are the ones who recognize he's the master and this is his house. Those who do not recognize his deed of ownership He is not their master, and he is not their God. And that's the fundamental issue with regard to this commandment. 
It's proof, ongoing proof, who owns the place. The observance of it means that you recognize that God had this right to put this restriction, and it's his sign of ownership. Now, the other more practical things that come with it, usually the, the question that, uh, that usually follows, and it's expressed here in this passage. Um, it's found there beginning in verse 18. Let me read for you a couple of verses. You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out, and you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you may eat your fill and live securely on it. Wonderful promise from the Lord. The Lord says, if you're honoring this, I'll give the land its produce, and not only will you have the produce, but you also will be able to live securely. You'll be able to enjoy the fruits of the land. Somebody's not going to come and take it away from you. And he says, but if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year, and it will come forth the crop for three years. See, stop and think about it. If you stop one year for the Sabbath, where do you, how do, how do you prepare for the first year of the next cycle? In, in effect, how do you prepare for the eighth year? Because you're, you're, you're not doing it. You're not pruning. You're not trimming. You're not gathering. You're not getting the land ready for the next year for the harvest. So he says, okay, here's what I'll do. On the sixth year, I'll give you three crops. It will cover the sixth year, it will cover the seventh year, and it'll cover the eighth year, because the eighth year you'll be working it again so that you can have another harvest. I'll give you enough to cover it. Ooh, big trust issue now. You know, can we trust God in a us? Well, you know, the scripture is real clear. It says that this God who's the creator, that he promises daily bread. It's one of the guarantees that you have with this God. He says, I will give you daily bread. I've not yet seen the righteous begging for bread, he says. Well, if we don't harvest, if we don't cultivate, if we, if we don't do anything with the land, how do we make it? God says, I'll, in, I'll cause the increase to be such that we'll cover for that whole period. You'll not have of want. You'll have sufficient. So that brings us to the, the second element. The first is that we dispute his ownership. We don't like the idea that he has the right to put restrictions. We don't like the right that he's a God. We want him like us. We want to be able to negotiate with him. You know, it was shared with me uh, this morning. Uh, John and I got together. He shared an interesting quote from a, a, a Russian general. And the Russians, of course, were of the Soviet Union were atheistic. And apparently this guy was in a discussion about the whole business of whether there was a God or not. And he happened to make a rather interesting statement. He says, it really comes down to it. Either there is a God or there isn't. In both cases, it's frightening. Think about that. If there really is a God, it's there, there really is a God. It, that's frightening. And if there's no God at all, ooh, that's frightening too. You know what most people do? Honestly, you know what most of us do in our life? We've got a light, we've got like a switch. We've got a God switch in our life. And it, it's when it's on, you know, God's on. When it's off, God's off. 
And what we do is to get through that, navigate through that frightening part about there really is a God and there really isn't a God and all that, we flip the switch back and forth. In our life, you know, when we need a God, flip the switch, let's put God on. Oh God, hear my prayer. When I want to do what I want to do, flip the switch off. Okay, don't have that restriction anymore. God's not stopping me. I can go do what I want. As long as my life is going great, God switch off. As long as my life starts, uh-oh, going the other way, turn the switch on quickly, God, come, come in and save me. Don't work that way. A whole bunch of people trying to do that. But I've done that in my life. I've tried that. I got this little imaginary switch. And actually, it's really what it is. It's either turning toward God or turning away from God. Turning toward God or turning away from God. And repenting is supposed to be turning the switch on. Turning toward God. Folks, we need to come to the point where we flip that switch on and we leave it alone. And yes, it is frightening. But it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is frightening. Stop and think about that for a moment. You're plugging along here in the world for 60-some or 70-some years, and then you get to meet him face-to-face, give an account. What you've done and all the things you didn't do, they, they ripple through the generations of other people. Your sins go to the third and fourth generation. Your blessings go to the thousandth generation. It's a little bit like, you know, we'd like to think that we're just this little autonomous plant. You know, we were born, we were like a seed, we grew up, we became a plant. And we think we're it. That's all there is. Turns out we're a branch. We came from something, and there's something else extending from us. And there was a time when we bore leaves and we have fruit, and then there's other time when we're a major support of a branch, and other other branches and leaves and fruit are being born, or out there and dying and not going anywhere. We're part of something bigger than us. What the Lord is trying to say for the mountain here to the children of Israel is you're going into a land and it's, part, it's something bigger than you. This, we've got things planned. There are things happening that are bigger than you, that go beyond your lifespan, some of which you'll only see once in your lifetime. It was kind of generally expecting that one could see one year of Jubilee in their lifetime. And he had a special life if he saw two. It was special if he saw two years of Jubilee. One would have to be in his youth and one would have to be in his age. At which point would you pick, you know, to get out of your debt? You know, to have a fresh start like that. When, When would you like to have the year of Jubilee come? I don't know. You know, it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting question as to when it would come. When we come to this point about the discussion of uh, how do we live and succeed and prosper and have a happy life and so forth, the year of Jubilee can be a, a, a wonderful event, you know, to take place in your life. Wonderful event. And to clear all your debts and have all of those things taken care of and you get to see your children have what what you had and 
when you began, and, and there's an assurance that, that, you know, they get the blessing that you got. The fact is, is that uh, most, most folks, as they get older, their life transitions from their life and, and becomes increasingly their children. You know, they, 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 they increasingly begin to accumulate for the, to give the inheritance. You know, the book of Proverbs says, a good man gives an inheritance to his children's children. This is the measure, how we measure a good man. You know, that he, he was wise, he stored, he prepared, and he was able to give a gift to help others to get going that went beyond his children to, to even still further generations. Like the branch that passed on the sap and the nourishment and then extended out to help the additional growth uh, of the tree for that. The land of Israel is connected to the people of Israel. It's part of the sap and the nourishment. But God said, you can't just suck this thing dry. He said, we want it to live and provide life and prosperity, but it needs a rest too. You know, most people uh, in our day and age, the, the, one of the number one ailments for people who are working is stress. You know what stress really is? The inability to rest. The inability to just stop, you know, the madness and take a break from it. You know, the people who suffer from stress, they take their job home, they bring it back, they take it home, they bring it back. They never get a rest. Just drives them nuts. Because they don't have a Sabbath rest working, you know, in their, in their, in their lives for them to be able to do it. It's just one year after the next and the next and the next and, you know, and so forth. Look, the Lord is trying to give us commandments that will promote life, not destroy it. Now, when I first grew up, I can remember my father and my uncle saying, hard work never killed a single guy. You ever heard that expression? Hard work never killed. No, the heck it doesn't. If you don't rest and you don't learn how to rest, it sure will. I remember the night give you a little personal testimony. I remember the night that I was laying in my bed several years ago here in Norman, Oklahoma. And my left arm started to ache like it was cramped or something. And it was about midnight and I was just awake enough to be aware of that it was hurting. And I thought maybe Lynn had laid on it wrong and pinched it or something. And when I rolled over onto my back, I don't know what it was. I never saw it coming. But it fell off the ceiling, and it felt like the end of a two-before. It hit me right here in the chest. And I had this massive pain of my chest drawing in on me and thinking I was being impaled, of which I could not breathe. I mean, seizure like that. And I couldn't make a sound. I, I, I couldn't even go, Ugh. I couldn't do nothing. And it pulled me up, it pulled all my limbs up into like a fetal position. And I rocked myself up and I immediately got up and headed toward the bathroom and I thought maybe I needed to take a drink of water or something. And I took a drink of water and man, it was hurting. I've felt pain before and the kind of pain that really gets me when I, I have a register system when my face starts to sweat 
and I, my eyes tear and my nose begins to run and all the liquid starts to flow out of me, that's the signal that it's really hurting this time, Monty. It, this one really hurts. You know, your whole body's doing all kinds of things now. And that's what I was doing. Began to sweat profusely. And it wasn't going away. And Lynn drove me into the um, emergency room. And as far as they were concerned, when they saw me, they thought I was having a heart attack. It was stress. Stress. And they thought I was dying, and I thought I was dying. Or at least I felt like I was dying. I didn't think I was dying. I was saying, Lord, what is this? I know I'm, I know I'm okay. I, I didn't have any fear of death. But my body was hurting. I identify with and I understand how people, what stress will do to them. The indigestion. The constant dreariness. The depression that comes with it, The strain on your system. It's trying to kill you. It's trying to sap the life right out of you. I was in the ICU for four days. I lost my short-term memory for two weeks. People who came and saw me for that two weeks there, I don't remember. That's what stress will do to you. If you don't figure out a way to rest. Praise God. When I um, left my employment, went into full-time ministry, my health has improved dramatically. I am ten times stronger than I was the last year I was working. My weight has come under control. My disposition is much vastly improved. Just got out from under that stress. The Sabbath business is important. It's real important. I can't imagine what I would have been done had I not been keeping Sabbath at all during that time. You've got to rest. You've got to have some uh, refreshment and relief. And the Lord promises that and wants us to, because if we don't, it will, it will sap the strength from your life. One of the other things that saps the strength from your life is indebtedness. Jubilee is to counter that. In here, it gives additional commandments for in the land. It says if a man, during the course of his time, if he is required to, because he has debt, to sell the land, you know what it says the commandment is? His family members, his brethren, his countrymen are supposed to come over and buy the land back and give it back to him. That it has to be, it, it, we were commanded to redeem it. Redeem the guy. And so the issue of redemption is in this. Now, a little bit different provision of this. If you had a house that was inside of a walled city, it doesn't apply to this, uh, this sabbatical thing. That a house inside of a, a, a walled city is a permanent dwelling place. Except for one group of people. The Levites. Because the Levites don't get to have a piece of the land. They were put into one of 48 cities. They were called the cities of the Levites. And once they were in there, here's the provision that God made for them concerning their property. They said that the house that they own, they get to redeem anytime they want. If they sell it, they get to redeem it anytime they want. The year of Jubilee, it comes back to the Levites. They sold it to someone other than a Levite. On the year of Jubilee, that house goes back to the Levites. And also from the walls of that city to the north, 2,000 cubits out, 
To the south, 2,000 cubits out. To the east and west, 2,000 cubits out. And every other surface in between those dimensions, 1,000 cubits from the walls of the city, all that ground is for pasture and growing for the Levite. And there were 48 cities in the land of Israel where the Levites could be. Because the Levites didn't get an ancestral land, but they did get to be in cities. And when they were in a city, in an appointed area of the city they belonged to, their ancestors belonged to, they could go back to that city and they could live in that house again. Now everyone else, say for example the city of Jerusalem, if you bought a house there, it could be permanently your house. It did not return on the year of Jubilee unless it had been a house that had belonged to a Levite. It's a kind of an interesting system where that there was a way for you could have permanent, you could hand from generation to generation on down, but you had to be inside of a walled city. And if you lived out into the country, then every generation had the opportunity to do that. Actually, what it did was it put a lot of pressure on for the people to live and disperse over the land as equally as possible. That's what it actually produced. It caused people to inhabit the land at the, at the optimal place. One of the great problems in the Palestinian peoples in the Middle East today is they all live in the cities. Damascus, if you go up into Syria, nobody lives out in the country. Nobody lives there. They all live in the city. But the people don't really disperse over the land and live on the benefit of the land. Instead, they all congregate in the cities. They have all the crime there. They have all the urban problems there. And they don't get the benefit of the land. They don't get the freshness and so forth. And they tend to pollute the one place where they're at as opposed to, you know, the other places. It's fascinating. If you don't do this right, you know, how it works to the contrary. But this system caused the people to spread out and to move over the land. It also caused us to take responsibility for one another when it came to somebody got into trouble, financial trouble. And there's some very specific commandments that are given here. There are other places in the Torah that give the instruction, but basically it says this is what basically what happens. Let's say that you get yourself in so much debt trouble that you have to sell your land. You don't have any land. You don't have any place to live. And you still have debt trouble. You can't, you can't accumulate enough to go back and redeem the land. Because if you, if you had the money and you had sold it, you can, you can redeem the land. If it's your ancestral land, you could go back, pay the money, and you could get it back. But let's say you, you couldn't make enough money to do it. You continued, whatever your judgments was, you continued to get yourself in further debt. Well, the provision was made for you to sell yourself essentially into slavery. And if you sold yourself to another Hebrew... The, the value that you were sold was up till the next sabbatical year. Let's say this next sabbatical year was five years away. Then you could sell your services of you for five years. Five years worth of work, and you could get it. And here's what happened. You basically surrendered all the decision-making about how you would spend and not spend. The way this worked was you really came into their household under their control and you became of their family. And the law taught that the man who was your master, he had to feed you the same food he would feed his children. He had to treat you the same way he would treat his own children. So you chose whom you wanted to serve. 
And that was the way that you paid the debt. And in effect, you took yourself right out of the, the economic system of making decisions, and now you were subject to that household. There. And when the sabbatical year came, you were free to go. Your debt was paid. You could have a fresh start. But let's say, and there was a law that handled this, let's say that you went into this master's house, and this was a good deal for you. This was working great. I just as soon stay here. Besides that, my master got me a wife. And the law said that if the master got you a wife when it's time for you to go, you could go, but she had to stay. And so there was a provision that for the reason of love, you could remain, and that's where we get the law of the bondservant. He's a bondservant for the reason of love. And he would have to go down with the master and make public testimony and say, hey, I love my master, I love my wife and children, my master's given to me, and I will not go out as a free man. And they would pierce his ear with an awl, usually at the doorpost or the, uh, the doorway of the house, and he would bear a, a ring indicating that he had submitted himself to be a bondservant. This is called the law of the bondservant. The fact of the matter is, brethren, whether you realize it or not, you're in deep debt to God. You're way beyond. And God's given you everything, including your wife and your children. And for those of you who come to terms with this and recognize this and understand what God has done for you, that it's good to be in the house of God, they become bondservants of Yeshua. You know how you become a bondservant of Yeshua? You go before all your brethren and you give testimony and you say, I love my master, the Lord. I love my wife and children that the Lord has given to me. And I love the brethren of the master, Yeshua, and I will not go out. And that's the reason why he was teaching. He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, you're my bondservants. Not somebody else's. Same premise. This was not a bad deal. This was a good deal. This was a way, this was a way if you couldn't quite manage affairs for yourself, this was a good way for you to still be taken care of, your family to be taken care of, and you could prosper and grow. And, there was, and it was not forever. There was freedom in your future. There was freedom at the sabbatical year. And in case of the bondservant, he was released on the year of Jubilee. He was a free man on the year of Jubilee. Everybody was free when Jubilee came. Everyone was free. The, um, the Lord gave these, I think, for the future implications that would be. It was a great system in the land of Israel. It's too bad they didn't follow it. They kind of, kind of they did follow it for a little bit, but for the most part they didn't. And in fact, in the next section that we'll be looking at is Moses who gives the, the uh, teaching and says, if you fail to obey this, here's what will happen to you. I, the Lord, will scatter you out of the land. I will give the land its rest. And I will scatter you through the nations. And then I'll bring you back. And what we have never seen, brethren, today, even in the new covenant, we've never yet seen the big year of Jubilee. But that's what the prophecies speak to us about when the Messiah comes. A great Jubilee that will take place. When the great high priest comes back, there will be a great blowing of a great trumpet, it says. A ram's horn. 
when we hear the horn for the great resurrection, for the rapture, those who are still alive, when we hear that he's coming, the day of the Lord, you know, the ram's horn's being blown, let me tell you what it is. It's also the ram's horn for the jubilee. All those who are dead are now alive. All debts paid. All the debts are clear. We get to come back and re-inhabit the earth, and the Lord will sort out this whole mess, and we'll start clean. Start over, just like what the Torah has specified. The whole idea of the millennial kingdom and his coming is completely consistent with what Moses told us. This is the system that God uses. These are not principles, I think, that an earthly government can go and attempt to follow. These are principles associated with the government of theocracy, when God is the government, not when men are the government. Because when men are the government, it's like what Moses was giving instruction there, don't harm, don't do wrong to one another. Because you set up a system like this, you'll see so much swindling and deals going on and behind-the-back kind of stuff and nonsense, it, it would never work. Because this system is based upon that there's a God, there really is a God, and you would fear him and you would do the right thing. The others, the rest of men, operate on the premise that there is no God. Or they can flip the switch and turn off God when they need to and not make God apply. So I'm not suggesting to you, by the way, that we should be doing this or that you should be. And if, if you want to give the, your garden a rest once every seven years, well, you go ahead. But you're, don't go around saying that I'm fulfilling the commandment. You know, the commandment applied to the land of Israel. It will apply in the future to the world. But you're not particularly, you know, being observant by trying to do this in advance. This is something for our future to look forward to. This is something for us that we will enjoy in the future. This is the kind of world that we will live, where righteousness will dwell. And one of the biggest things that will be different when the Lord comes back is the whole economic system. All the economics of the value of land, of a person's life, of how debts are dealt with, all of that business, that will all be different. It will probably be predicated on these things. So that each doesn't get into the depression of indebtedness. That each gets their proper rest and rejuvenated so that life prospers and goes on. The, uh, the rest of this, uh, of this chapter for chapter 25 goes through some of the details of what we were talking about and in particular talked about the issues of say a sojourner and a Gentile had the finances and, and purchased a, a Hebrew and the laws with regard to how they are to be treated and who can be redeemed and how can you be redeemed but there was always a, re, a right of redemption uh, in all of these commandments uh, so that it would work out the reason why and I'll conclude with this the reason why that the Hebrew sages want to attach uh, the, um, the first couple of verses of chapter 26 is because of this. You shall not make for yourself idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So you might ask yourself, what has that got to do with sabbatical years and years of jubilee? It is this, even if, even if you are sold into the service of another and he is now your master, 
If he sets up an idol, even then you still will not bow down. You still won't do it. Let me tell you what the importance of that principle is for us. A lot of you struggle with the idea, how can I keep Sabbath? Well, you know, my job makes me do certain things. I, I, I can't. Well, you've got two problems. First of all, you've got a God who's given you a commandment that you need to follow. And he has specifically said here, even if the guy's your master, you will still obey me because I'm the master above him. Secondly, it's you're not trusting him for like the sabbatical year. He said he will give you the increase. I will give you my personal testimony at the last time the Lord tested me on this. I was assigned as a proposal leader and was sent down into San Diego with my company. We had literally hundreds of people working on this thing. And we were working furiously to try to get this job done. We had to write a 2,000-page proposal in three months. And my teammate was a foreign country. (laughs) You know, you you, can imagine the English problems of trying to write a technical proposal for this stuff. And it wasn't some schmaltzy thing. It was a radar. And we were dealing with a Swedish company. And they all were working. We were working furiously. and, And as soon as I got there, I was put in charge of 14 volumes and had teams of writers and people doing it. And everybody's working six days a week, Monday through Saturday. And I got a problem. (laughs) And I've always treated proposals like war. You know, I mean, it's like a time of war. I mean, they call it a war room where you work in. With great knowing that my my whole future rested on this. I went to my boss. I prayed. I went to my boss and I said, boss, I said, here's my problem. See, I, I believe in the God of Israel. And he said that he's the creator of heaven and earth and that he ceased from his labors and he didn't work on the seventh day. If I work on the seventh day for you, I fear that I shall bring a curse down from the God of heaven and earth upon you, your company and this project. I'm asking, would you permit me to work, not work on the seventh day, and I assure you that my work product will be greater than anyone else's. I will get it done in the other six days. He was so challenged by it, he put out an edict and he says, nobody is going to work on this proposal on Saturdays. We will shut this place down on Friday night. Everybody takes one day of rest. It's mandatory. You can take Sunday off if you want, but you have to take that day off. Because he did not want the God of Israel to be opposed to this program. (laughs) Hey, that's what used to happen in the Old Testament. It came down to who's God and who's not. That's the reason why he makes those commandments. So that it will be a sign to other men that there really is a God. And by you keeping it, you give the sign there really is a God. You give testimony to it. It works. By the way, we did, we beat that schedule. And I was, as a result of my performance on that, I was promoted from a program manager to a director to an assistant vice president to a vice president. I got three promotions in six months. That's what the Lord can do. He will cause the increase to come if we'll trust and believe it. Amen. Personal testimony. And this is uh, the commandments that teach us of it. And I believe that his blessing is true. He shall cause the increase. He shall order a blessing for you. If you will but obey this. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the blessing of Sabbath, for the blessing of the sabbatical year, for the blessing of the Sabbath of Sabbath, the year of Jubilee. And Lord, this world has not yet seen fully when the great high priest comes back on the Day of Atonement to blow that uh, ram's horn and to proclaim liberty throughout all of the earth. And Lord, but Lord, we look forward to the day when Messiah Yeshua will come and it will be proclaimed a year of jubilee for all that are upon the earth and that all that are in debt are released from it. Lord, that all of us are returned to the land uh, to dwell with you, Lord. So, Lord, we ask for your blessing uh, this evening upon this uh, portion of the Torah that it might be made so in our days and uh, for our us and for our families. And we ask this all in the name of our coming King Yeshua. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is net. Thank you.